You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. With the many interviews I've conducted on this podcast, I discover connections and similarities with many fellow creatives. And I often marvel at their artistry and talents and tenacity in this business. And although I hate to admit it, there are even times when I'm a bit jealous as well just hoping that one day I can look back on a career as rich and diverse and fulfilling as theirs. And this episode is one such case, where I had the privilege of sitting down with an acclaimed actor about his artistic journey and multifaceted work life. Hi, I'm John Rubinstein. I'm an actor and a director and a composer and a teacher. Yeah. And been juggling that for a long time. I was born in Los Angeles, California. I live in Los Angeles, California. And I've spent a lot of my time in my youth in New York and in Paris, France. He was born the son of renowned pianist Arthur Rubinstein. And John's early exposure to theater in the eighth grade ignited a passion that would shape the trajectory of his extraordinary career. He catapulted to Broadway stardom, originating the title role in Pippin, directed by Bob Fosse, and won a Tony Award for his compelling performance in Children of a Lesser God. A true Renaissance man, John's artistic pursuits extend beyond the stage into television and film as well, both as an actor and composer, where he has written the scores or theme songs for several movies and TV shows. We also talk about his current off-Broadway project, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, which adapts General Dwight Eisenhower's memoirs, speeches, and letters into a one-man stage play. And of course, we talk about one of my favorite topics, auditioning. I get paid to audition and to be rejected. That is where I make my living. And if I get a job, I work for nothing. I work for free. Just so happens that the producers who hire me for a job pay me for all the auditions. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer for more than 30 years. Every other week, I talk with fellow creatives who bring us stories from their own life of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe, donate, and find past episodes. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, John. It is so good to meet you and to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we as actors, we come to performing in different ways. And for you, it was eighth grade and Shakespeare. Now, now that's not exactly light reading for a 13-year-old. What, what was it about that experience that stuck with you? Well, I had the great good fortune of going to a wonderful school here in New York City called St. Bernard's. Uh, it's a private boys' school. But in those days, the early 50s, it was, I'm sure it cost some money, but it wasn't one of those exclusive that you have to know the, you know, president of the United States in order to get into it or be a multimillionaire. It was a good old school. So my parents sent me there, all boys, and uh, it was run and established by British teachers and, and masters, as we called them. And... um they took their public speaking very seriously, as opposed to the, uh, you know, American tradition of, oh, yeah, you know, you send your, I have five children, so I put them all through school here. And I've loved all their schools, and they do their little plays, and they do their little performances, whatever they are, and the parents all show up and go, oh, that's my kid up there. And it's all real cute, but they don't really teach them anything, and they don't take it seriously. It's really just to get them up there and have fun and the parents to come and, and Google at their, at their babies, which is all great. But in this school, nope, we had to learn these long poems. We had to stand up in front of the school and recite them. We had to memorize all kinds of other stuff. And starting in the earliest grades, um, we had to perform. 
And the performing, again, was taken seriously. We had to speak clearly. We had to be heard. We had to understand what we were doing. If it was a joke, we had to know how to time it for the laugh. If it was serious, we had to be serious and not giggle at ourselves while we were doing it. All the boys played all the girls' parts, of course, um, because there were no girls. And there was never the slightest bit of teasing or making fun or feeling weird if you're, uh, you know, wearing full makeup and, and women's clothes. You were absolutely just one of the actors in the play. In eighth grade, which was the graduating class, the eighth grade always performed an, a full uncut Shakespeare play. And in seventh grade, you were in the homeroom of the director who directed the eighth grade Shakespeare play. So in seventh grade, your entire year in English class was that play that you would do next year. And so everybody in the room read every part. You just read it aloud over and over and over again. So by the end of the year, everybody had read all the parts. We all knew the play. The teacher, of course, explained to us all the references to whatever it was from Shakespeare, the Greek mythology, even sexual stuff. We were taught what we were talking about. So we knew every word and every reference and got the dirty jokes and everything was ready. And then at the end of the seventh grade year, we were cast and we would learn our roles over the summer. Was there a bit of auditioning or was it just no, as you the, were reading No, the audition it? was just him hearing us read it all year long. And then he and would so decide. Out, okay, this guy is reading this, making a little bit more sense or he's putting a little more into it. Maybe he has some sort of, you know, not talent, but just some leanings towards towards being an actor. He, he might have that that gene going. And so he cast accordingly. I got cast in, uh, well, and then he would use extras from the younger grades if he ran out of people. So in sixth grade, I was a fairy in The Tempest, which was that year's eighth grade play. And in seventh grade, I had a wonderful part called The Boy, in Henry V. And he, it's a actually wonderful role. He's with all the, the funny people, the Pistol and Bardolph and Nim and all the, the comics. And the boys, the young kid, and they all go off to fight the war for, for you know, Prince Harry, King Harry. And he uh, he's left alone on stage and he has a monologue, a, a soliloquy of, I want to go and fight and I, I never thought I would, but blah, blah, blah. Wonderful speech. So that was my part in seventh grade and then in eighth grade our play was macbeth oh it's one of my favorites yeah yes it's a great great masterpiece and i got to play macbeth and so um in eighth grade that's what i did and by the time i finished eighth grade which i was uh i was 13 i was 14 um i wanted to be an actor that's it and of course i lived in new york and in those days, you could afford <laughs> to go to the theater um, on your allowance if you were a kid. You can't now. So I really don't know what young kids in this city, or, or almost anywhere, but especially here, who are taken by the theater and, and want to learn and want to see it. I don't know what they do because they can't go. They can go to maybe one show a year or two. And if they're very rich, they can go to several, but they can't go like I did on my allowance. I could pay $5 or less even sometimes, sit in the balcony. And if I loved the show, I could see it three times. So I saw everything, musicals and plays, dramas and comedies, everything that that uh, played in New York when I was a kid. That That's what I did. Yeah. Christmas and on my birthdays, everybody would go, oh, don't, don't do anything, just give him a theater ticket. <laughs> those were my presents and I would go and I saw everything for all those amazing years which are sometimes called the golden years of Broadway right that golden but era yeah I saw all those actors and all those plays directed by all those directors and written by all those amazing playwrights and that plus my education at that school uh, I was going to be an actor no matter what yeah, yeah. Well, well, certainly the location being in New York played a big part that of that. That sure and, helped. Yeah. And then years later, you got to direct a production of Macbeth. Was that, yes. was that was that interesting being on the other side of the table? Sure, sure it was, because 
I knew the play very well. I mean, still from a you know thirteen year old's point of view, but but as I said, we studied it so deeply and had studied other Shakespeare plays and done them as well. So that yeah, when I had the opportunity to direct a Shakespeare play, I picked Macbeth. You know, a little bit out of you know insecurity because I wasn't going to tackle a Shakespeare play that I didn't know. So yeah, I picked the one that I knew the best. But boy, it's so great. And it, the actor who played Macbeth in that, that was in 1981 or something, um, just came and saw my play here in New York. And we I hadn't seen him since then. And he's made a career as an actor himself. And, and so that was great to see him. That is wonderful. We'll get into the, the first story here. And this deals with Sunday in the Park with George, the, the Broadway production. So Mandy Patinkin obviously started the role, and then obviously as he was starting to leave, they were looking for replacements. And so this is where you step in, sort of. <laughs> yes, uh, I was doing a play on Broadway a few years earlier, and uh, my parents' dear friends were Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon, who were married. Garson, of course, great director and great writer, and they both had been writers in Hollywood, so they all knew each other very well. And they were sort of mentors of mine. They had seen me at that school play Macbeth at 13. And it was Garson who sort of took me under his wing. He took me seriously as a young boy wanting to be an actor. And so he brought me to all of his plays and let me watch him direct. And um, so I learned a, a great deal uh, from them. And so when I was doing this play on Broadway, they were living on Martha's Vineyard, and they said they had a, a townhouse on East 49th Street. And they said, we had uh, two babies right there. You and your wife and your babies can uh, live in our house on 49th Street while you look for an apartment. And that was great. So we did. And one day, um, I was sitting in, in their living room playing the piano, which I tend to do, and, you know, just fooling around, not, you know, practicing anything serious, just playing. And suddenly there was a, a ring at the doorbell. And so I stopped playing and I went downstairs where the front door was and I opened it up. And there, absolutely recognizable, uh, was a man I'd never met, but I knew immediately, Stephen Sondheim. Huh. And I said, uh, yeah? And he said, are you the one playing the piano? And I said, uh, yes. So, well, you're driving me crazy. Could you please stop? I'm trying to write music. And uh, all I can hear is you. So, so just cut it out, would you? I'd, I'd be grateful. I said, oh, yeah, well, I'm really sorry. Okay, sir, thank you. And then he left. Now <laughs> it's three or four years later. I've done uh, a couple of Broadway shows in the, in the meantime. And I get a call from my agent saying, um, Mandy Patinkin is leaving Sunday in the Park with George, and uh, they're considering you to take over. And could you audition? for Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. I said, oh, wait, yeah, sure, I'd love to. And they sent me two songs. One was Finishing the Hat, you know, great solo, very difficult to sing. Um, I'd seen the show, of course. Um, and the other one was the big duet at the end, Move On, you know, big love song. We do not belong together. You know, really a, a, a big deal. So I learned, memorized the finishing the hat, which was the solo. But I was doing a television series out in Los Angeles at the time. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of time. I was working 14, 15, 16 hour days. And I was memorizing the Sondheim song. And then I flew to New York and I didn't memorize the duet. I figured, okay, look, I'll hold the music and I'll sing it. I know it. I've learned it. I, I know the music. But you know, they'll understand, and I'll just, I'll sing it out off the page, and whatever. Um, so I go, and I show up at the audition, and I, there's Sondheim, we don't, <laughs> we don't talk about our first meeting, probably doesn't even remember, and I sing the Finishing the Hat, and I think I did a decent job of it. Got all the words, and hit all the notes, and, you know, meant what I was saying, which is basically what we do. And then they said, okay, now would you sing the duet? And I said, well, <clears throat> I'm so sorry that I didn't have, I couldn't memorize this one just in the time I had. But uh, yes, of course, I'll sing it for you. And they said, oh, good, uh, Bernadette. And they 
Bernadette Peters comes out. She's not leaving the play. She's still in. She's been doing it for a year. But she was kind enough at, on their request to, would you please sing with the poor idiots who are, are auditioning? And she said, oh, God, really do I have to? I mean, I'm making that up, but I bet that's what she said. Um, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So suddenly, there's Bernadette on stage with me. I'm holding, this is before the days where, where everything was on computers and you could print it up and all that. So I had this oversized, you know, bigger than legal size, just large pages of score, which were taped together, accordionated, so that oh, if right, you opened right. them up, they, they, they would be 35 feet long. But you folded them up so that you could turn the pages. So I had that in my hands, but there she is standing, looking at me, ready to sing her song that, of course, she sang last night and to got a standing ovation for with Mandy in his last performance. So um, I'm terribly uh, uh, you know, intimidated and frightened, but, you know, I'm, I'm game. I'll do anything. So they start the music, doodly, 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 move on, and... With, I start singing, and she's looking at me, and she's singing with me. But suddenly, I'm I'm flipping the pages, and they fall out of my grasp, (laughs) and they unaccordionate themselves onto the stage in this massive sort of train, like of a bride, you know. And now I don't know the words, so I I I have to stop singing. She stands there, you know. Oh God. And I'm thumpering around on the floor, trying to pick up the pages and fold them back into a usable thing. And the pianist sort of stops and looks at me. And then finally, Lapine screams out, that's okay. That's fine. That, that's, that, that was good enough. Yeah, good. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Bye. And that was the end of my audition. I didn't get the point. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it something like that happens. There's really no recovery. No. No. I mean, I could have picked it back up and started uh, again. You, you try, sure. They'd seen enough of me by then, and they just, <laughs> they they wanted to put me out of my misery. But the the punchline to that rather sad story, and I was really disappointed because I wanted to do that part, and I think I could have done it really well. I couldn't have sung it as amazingly as Mandy, but I could have sung it, and I could have done it. So. I was very disappointed. And now it's a year and something later, like 14 months-ish later, I happen to be in Europe with my uh, wife and kids on a sort of vacation. And in, we're in this weird hotel in Switzerland in the middle of nowhere. And I get a message from the desk. There's a phone call for you from America. Oh, okay. This is, of course, before cell phones and all that. I go to my phone, it rings, I, hello, and it's um, my agent from New York, and he's saying, uh, Lapine and Sondheim and George Firth are reworking Merrily We Roll Along for the first time, because it was a big flop on Broadway some years before, but they want to bring it back, and they've rewritten a lot of it, and they want to continue to rewrite it. And they want you to play the lead, Franklin Shepard, in La Jolla, California, at the La Jolla Playhouse. First time it's been done again since it closed on Broadway. And James Lapine now is going to direct it. And I said, yeah, no audition, just come and do it. So they gave me that part based on my horrible audition for Sunday in the Park. <laughs> well, I'm sure based on a few of your other projects that they probably saw. Well, I don't but, know. I, yeah, yeah. You're different. I, I, but one thing that I was reading, and I didn't realize that Stephen Sondheim also wrote plays. Like We all know his musical work, but yeah. Getting Away with Murder lasted a couple of weeks on Broadway, and you were a part of that as well. I was. I was. What was that experience like? Because obviously we know his musical genius, but what was it like without his music in a production? Well, he's, he was always well known as a lover of puzzles and games and mysteries. And he wrote a movie script years before that, uh, that Richard Benjamin was in, and I now can't come up with the name of it. Um, but anybody listening who knows their son knows exactly which movie I'm talking about. 
but it was a murder mystery. And he wrote the screenplay. And he loved that genre. He just loved murder mysteries. And uh, he and George Firth had written Company together, so they were pals. And um, and George was somebody that I knew. I had directed a few of his plays, too. And so um, they decided to write a mystery play together uh, with Sondheim sort of writing the story, what happens and who does what to whom, and George writing the dialogue, writing all the play. And they worked very well together. And it was a it was a, a blast. We did it first at the Old Globe in San Diego, and it was called The Doctor Is Out. Um, and then we did it again on Broadway about a couple of months later, and, and it was called... Uh, getting away with murder and um and we didn't <laughs> the critics had it's as though they had been waiting for the moment where they could excoriate something by sondheim they had just given the pulitzer prize to him and lapine for sunday in the park and they they and into the woods had opened i think and and that had been quite successful and so they figured okay you know here's here's uh this was Jack O'Brien directing it, but this was Sondheim, and maybe it's time we gave him a little, a little beating, and and they did, and we closed. Quickly. Yeah, you closed, but it was a, it was a hilarious, great play. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy whether it's like Andrew Lloyd Webber or these other people that critics just love to beat up on if they can. They do. I mean, they've wasted so much of their of their time thumbing through their thesaurus, looking words of praise for these guys year after year, season after season. Finally, they see some plight and say, wait a minute, this is one we can tear apart. <laughs> and we can look at the other part of the thesaurus, the part that has all the mean words, and we can use those. And they take great pleasure. I had the same experience with dear poor old you know, Neil Simon, who had nothing but hits after hits after hits, year after year after year. And um, that was another uh, you know, sad story for Mark, for me. But anyway, um, he wrote a play basically with me in mind and cast me without auditioning. And I played the lead and I had my name above the title. And it was a huge thing for me. I was so excited. Called uh, Well, it was first called The Curse of Kulienchikov. And then they changed it to Fools. I can see why they changed that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it had a great, great cast of people. I mean, uh, you know, Pamela Reed played opposite me, uh, Harold Gould and uh, Mary Louise Wilson and Jerry Hyken. Uh, just the, the wonderful cast of comic great actors. And we would have to, to, Hal Gould and I would look at each other and say a line, and we'd have to stand there while the audience not only laughed, but applauded and screamed with laughter at the line. Then we went on with the play. I mean, it was one of those things. And the critics, all, I don't know if there was one good review, every one of them. It was like, finally, something that we can tear Neil Simon down with. He's just had too many hits. So here we go, boys. Roll up your sleeve. Vocabulary and salad, yes. We were out of there pretty quick. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Speaking of Jack O'Brien that you worked with, you've also worked with Diane Paulus and Mike Nichols, but probably no more iconic director than Bob Fosse that you've worked with. What would you say is one of your favorite memories of working with him? Well, I tell you, it, it was it was it was the way it was the way he approached what he did as a director and as a choreographer and and as a person. He was he was smart. He had this just, you could tell the moment you said hello to him, he looked at you and he was thinking. And when he talked to you, even if he just said, where should we have coffee? There was, there was depth to it. There was, there was a meaning to it. There was a joke in it. He had a twinkle in his eye and he was thinking all the time. And when he was directing, of course, that's the main part of the job. And he had this sort of direct into intuitive connection to the audience. He was always not only thinking not how to please them and to give them what they expected or wanted, 
but what the play needed to do in order to give them what they needed in terms of whatever it was, information or surprise or uh, a, a deep emotion or a, a big joke. And so as he was directing a play, he was thinking of the audience, of just the public coming in and how can I make this scene, this moment, this dance step work so that, bang, the audience gets what I'm trying to do. And many directors don't do that. Of course, they think about it. The audience, everybody does. But I mean, they are looking at the, the actions on the stage and just making themselves like it, figuring that, okay, I'm going to make what I like, and hopefully the audience will too. And Bob was doing that, but always saying, no, 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 this joke, I like it. It's funny. We're all laughing. But no, it needs this extra little thing before the audience is going to get it with us. And I loved that about him. It just, it made you trust yourself with him. Do what you want with me, Bob. I'm with you because I know you're way ahead of what's going on and you know what's going what's gonna to work and what isn't. That was a wonderful feeling. Now, in every episode, you get three stories. But if you want bonus segments with extra audition stories and the final five questions about lessons learned and what making it really means, then what you have to do is subscribe to Win Me at whyillnevermakeit.com. You just click subscribe there or here in the show notes, give this podcast a little money, and you'll get the full episodes with all the stories and bonus segments included. And another benefit of subscribing is that you won't have to listen to any ads either. For the second story, they're playing our song. And what was your experience with this show? Well, that was an agent problem. Now, agents, uh, I, I've had many agents throughout my career. You know, we part ways just simply because uh, it's not working out. I'm not getting enough jobs or you know, that they don't answer their phone or something like that. Sometimes they stop being agents. And so, uh-oh, I don't have an agent anymore. You know, there are different reasons. But for most actors, there's every few years, oh, yes, I have my new agency. You know, With me, it was always a thing about LA and New York. I needed to be represented in both cities. I needed, even if I was in LA, I needed my agent in New York to say, hey, John, this is happening. Get over here or something. And likewise, if I was working here, I needed an agent in LA saying, wait, there's a movie coming up. There's a TV thing. When your show is over, blah, blah, blah. If it, I only had an agent in one city, it didn't, that didn't work. Or if I had two separate agents that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't because they were now sort of in competition with each other. So I had just changed and I had a new agent who was a very, very, a successful, popular agent in New York City. Older guy. I was a young, youngish man in my what, 30s, mid 30s. And he was sort of a, you know, a fixture of old New York theater. And he had handled all the great directors and actors and writers. And he was the guy. And so I said, Yay, I'm with him now. So I'm set. But I didn't know him. We spoke on the phone. He'd seen me in, in uh, plays and stuff, so he sort of knew who I was. Um, but all I had done at that point on Broadway was Pippin. I hadn't done uh, any of the other plays and hadn't won any awards or any of that kind of stuff. So I was, you know, I was sort of semi-known in just in theatrical circles, not n nowhere else. And, and I auditioned in Los Angeles because Neil Simon lived in LA at that point um, for their play in our song, which was going to be, I mean, which was about a composer and his partner, lyricist woman. Um, and the composer role was the one that I was up for. And I was told to learn three or four scenes or whatever it was. I came to the audition. I read the scenes. There was Marvin Hamlish, who was going to write the score. I had known him when he was the rehearsal pianist for the original production of Funny Girl, because I was at all the rehearsals. 
because Garson Kanan, my old friend, directed it. So I was at all those rehearsals with Barbara Streisand and everybody, where Marvin was the, the pianist, you know. Um, but now he was the composer. But the joke was, hey, I am a pianist. I'm not a pianist, but I play the piano. And so I would play the piano live on stage for myself while singing the songs because he was always playing the piano. That was the deal in that show. So I finished my audition. It goes very well. And my agent, the younger version of my agent uh, at that agency, calls me and says, you got the part. They want you to do it. They love you. It's in. And Marvin is going to write different kind of music so that you can play it. I mean, he's going to write stuff for you because they didn't know if they, was going to, if they were going to find an actor who could also play. But since it's you and you can, that's how it's going to go. And, and congratulations. This is a starring role on Broadway in a big musical. Lucy Garnes is going to play opposite and said, oh, my gosh, that's great. I can't wait. Now, I had done Pippin for two years, signed a two-year contract for very little money. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of, of anything because you know, it was my very first time on Broadway. You don't pay people when they're brand new, and I get it. But I, you know, during those two years, uh, I, my wife had had two babies, and we we struggled just just a little bit. You know, it was it, doing eight shows a week, singing those high notes, and leaping about on the stage with no shoes on. <laughs> Um, I, I now knew what it was to do a big part in a big Broadway musical eight times a week while raising very young children. And I said, you know, this time they, they, they have to pay me as though I were actually the lead actor in the show. They, they can't pay me like I'm just the, the last person on the list on, on the ensemble. So th I said that in a sort of, you know, very uppity kind of way. And you're telling and your agent this, right? My agent, yeah. I said, please have them pay me this time because they got away with paying me very little the first time. And I absolutely am grateful and glad that, that I got to do that. But um, let's not say, well, look, this is what he made in the last show. Let's pay him. We, we don't need to pay him anymore <laughs> this time. Because <laughs> that's basically, you know, producer thinking. And so they started the negotiation and they offered me way less. And I wanted, and I said, oh, come on, let's, can't we have a little bit more? And that was it. And then I found myself in these conversations with this older agent who had a German accent. And my father had a, it was Polish, but he learned English in Germany as a very young boy in the 1800s. So he also had a slightly, he, I can't imitate my dad, but he, he, he didn't have a German accent, but he had that Eastern European kind of thing, very, very precise, but not quite. And that's exactly how this agent talked. So I sort of fell into, oh, it's, he's like dad. You know, he's like an authority figure. He has his foreign accents. He knows what he's talking about. He's handled all the great directors and all the great actors. And he's, he's the number one agent in New York. So he started talking to me. Well, John, yeah, have you heard the music? Well, I said, no, no. Uh, you know, I, I, I know Marvin Amish. I know, of course, like, I, I said, wait, wait a minute. I, I had Leonard Bernstein and Leonard always goes to the house of the actor that they're offering the part to, and he plays the score for them in the house before they, before they agree to do it. How can you agree to do a musical eight times a week and you don't know the music? I said, oh, geez, you got a good point there. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear the music. So then about three days later, I'm waiting every day, sort of looking at the phone, seeing if I can make it ring. Um, and it rings. And it's the director of the play, whose uh, name just now escapes me, a wonderful guy. Um, anyway, he called me at my house. It was at night, I remember, because everybody was asleep. And I was at, sitting downstairs in the kitchen. And he said, John, I hear you're turning us down. I said, what? Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. Who told you that? He said, well, I don't know. I've just been told by, by the producers and people that um, you're making all kinds of demands that, that we can't possibly 
meet and, and that you're you're basically saying, forget about it. You don't want to do it. I said, well, oh, oh my God, no, I'm so glad you called me. Uh, no, I'll do it. I'll pay you to let me do it. You know? <laughs> right. I said, yeah, we're negotiating about the salary, but I think we're something like $500 apart at this point. My last. So either you guys give me the 500 that I want, or I do without it, or we meet at 250. That's sort of how it goes. It's one of those, you know, three choices. But whatever it is, I'm in. So I, thank you for calling. And I'm glad you, that you uh, got in touch. So yeah, no problem. And I went to bed saying, geez, wow, that was close. Almost lost that one. The phone rings the next morning. And it's the younger agent, not the old guy, saying, um, John, they they passed. I said, they, who's they and what 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 do you mean? They're not, they're uh, they've moved on to their next choice. They're not casting. I said, what? They can't do that. We I never said no. I never said take it or leave it. I never said if you don't pay me X Y Z, I'm not doing. I never said that. And I I talked last night to the director, and he said, you know, and I told him that I'm in. I told him I'd pay him. To let me beat it. He said, well, they, they've moved on. I said, but that's impossible. That can't be. So I called up Neil Simon at his house because I had his number for some reason. And I said, Neil, what, what happened? I was so looking forward to doing your play, but I was just told that you've decided not to cast me. He said, well, yes, I was told that you didn't, uh, that you didn't want to do the play. I said, what? How could you have been told that? Well, I heard that, for instance, the play wasn't good enough for you. You needed to hear the score before you would even consider doing it. And uh, I thought that you rather liked the play, but obviously you didn't think it was good enough for you by your standard. So he was like insulting. And I said, oh, no, 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 none of that is true. I, I love the play. And, and my agent sort of told me I was supposed to listen to the score first and i said yes but i don't care I, I don't care what the score is i'm sure it's perfect he said well it's uh, sorry we, we've moved on it's going to be uh, robert klein i said well then no 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 call up klein and tell him uh, tell him what you told me that you it, it was a mistake it's me you offered me the ball you know, that wouldn't be ethical you can't do that and that was the end of that wow Wow. Uh, later, did you later, stay with that I agent will, much longer? Uh, no, that was the day I left that agency. Yeah. Um, but I learned that that old agent had had a beef with uh, Neil Simon and Mike Nichols. And he had a sort of a vendetta going. And he didn't care about me. He didn't even know who the hell I was. It, he had a party wanted to make Neil Simon miserable. He wanted to be able to say, I screwed him. Ugh. He wanted this one actor. <laughs> I made it not happen. That's that's the story that I was. So thinking. in screwing over Neil Simon, he screwed you over. Yes. I, I was just, you know, a, a, a pawn. You, you throw a bomb and you kill all <laughs> of the people at the wedding instead of the one person you're aiming at. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I was just on the on the, I was roadkill on the way to the party oh goodness oh, yeah and i was i was miserable about that and i i i i, I still haven't gotten over it actually if, if, if i'm honest and yet because of that i had the chance to do children of a lesser god which uh was a play that was my second play then on broadway and um and that was a very very big success and it was a great great thing for me that's another one of those things, you know, door closes, a window opens yep. kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. It yeah. does. It doesn't, doesn't always happen, but no. it sure can. It sure can. Mistakes are, are painful. I had another similar one with a movie. Elia Kazan wanted me to be in a movie that he made with uh, Harold Pinter writing the screenplay from, a, from a, I think, an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. And I was excited as hell. And then again, I had agents and they said, oh, he wants this and he needs that. And I didn't end up doing it because they cast somebody else. And I hadn't asked for any of that, but the agents had. 
And then I ran into Ilya Kazan on a back lot when I was doing some TV show and he was walking. He said, hey, John, why didn't you do my movie? You know, I said, oh, I wanted to, blah, 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 blah. We had that conversation. So I missed getting to work with Ilya Kazan. Yeah. And I was also asked to play Muttleba Taylor in the movie of Fiddler on the Roof mm -hmm. by Norman Jewison and, and Johnny Williams and all those guys. And again, it was a thing, you know? It's, it, know. it's kind of crazy what goes on without us even there. And yeah. then all of a sudden we're in a project or not in a project. Yeah. And they always blame you. And most of the time it is you talking to your agent saying, I'm not going to do that unless they do this for me <laughs> and that for me. But with me, it was never that. I had just done a movie uh, in the desert of Mexico for almost four months, and I was sort of crazy. And I came home, and they offered me that, and there was going to be nine months in Yugoslavia. I said, oh, oy, oy, oy. okay, well then, you know, something. I said, I asked them something about billing or something like that. And um, the next thing I knew, they, they cast somebody else. But those are the things, you know, you go through your life. And it's kind of crazy in looking over your career. I mean, the actor, director, composer, musician, voiceovers, you, you, you've really established yourself in so many different fields. Now, you know, actors of today, yeah, we have to be these multi-hyphenates. We have to do it all because we have to create our own work or find it some other way. We can't just rely on agents or other people. But during your time, were you an outlier or was that the business? And that's always been the business as far as like having to do it all and always finding work for yourself through many different fields. No, 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 it wasn't. It was, I never went and looked for work. My agents, you know, they, they do, and they still do. Of course, they, they look at what they call the breakdowns, which are the lists of TV shows and movies that are being cast by various casting organizations and uh oh here's a part that you could play and then they call those casting people and say hey i've got john rubenstein uh, among the 19 other actors i had that could also play that part and they send the list in and the casting director sort of throws the, the dart at the list and the one it lands on they call in for an audition and now of course they don't call them in they you do it at home on tape so it's a whole other yeah, how, how have you liked the whole self-tapes? I hate them personally. What are I your hate thoughts? them. I hate them. I hate them. I used to love driving or walking, depending on which town I was in, to an audition. And you see all the old guys sitting around, you know, people that I knew. We were all teenagers, all auditioning to play the crazy drug-addicted, you know, kid. And now we're all in our 70s playing the, you know, the grandpas and the judges and lawyers. And it's still us, you know, we're still hacking away. And then you sit around and you see them and you, hey, you're on your third marriage. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so happy. Whatever you say. And, uh, and then you go in and either you meet people like the director and the producer, but more often than not, you meet a, a camera and a uh, casting assistant who has the script and they turn on the camera and you stand on the mark and you do your scene that you learned and prepared and, Oh, shoot. If you blow it, you say, can we do that again? And they say, sure, of course. And they do it and they read with you. And it's it's a good experience. And you walk out of there, you say goodbye to all the other guys. Good luck, you say, not meaning it. And uh, <laughs> and you go on with your life. Now, oh, you got to learn four scenes. It's 12 pages. You got to ask your poor wife or partner or if you happen to live alone you call a friend and he has to or she has to come over and read the lines off camera you have to set up your camera you have to set up the lighting there mustn't be a shadow on the wall behind you or whatever it's a whole thing and now you do it and then you get to the penultimate line and you blow it and oh god we got to do the whole thing again because you can't hold your script and look down and read when the camera's on you and so you finally end up doing four scenes, each one 17 times. And yeah. oh, you have to sit with your computer and look at them all and find the good ones and edit them together and send them. It's a huge, big file. And you can only send it via whatever, you know. And, oh, it's endless. It takes yeah. your whole day and it ruins your life. And that's how we get roles these days. Yeah, yeah, it really is. There's nothing like the energy of being in the room. And now yes. the energy in my bedroom just isn't the same. That's correct. Just, That's right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The dog comes in and barks 
at you and you yeah, know it, there's a siren or yeah, yeah, yeah. anything happens oh well. oh my goodness yeah for us huh? i know it's a hard life right it is <laughs> But it absolutely is. I mean, it, it, it is a grind, and there's a reason why they call it the grind. My philosophy has always been, and I've taught a lot at universities, and I always tell my students, I get paid to audition and to be rejected. That is where I make my living. And if I get a job, I work for nothing. I work for free. Just so happens that the producers who hire me for a job pay me for all the auditions. But that's where I earn my money, is by learning all those scenes and all those characters and putting them on tape or doing them in a theater and being called back and doing them again and blah 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 and no we're hiring somebody else thank you yeah, yeah. that's where i that's the money that well that is the job auditioning yeah. that is our job that is the job and then occasionally we get to do it on stage yes Sometimes. and then that's a freebie yeah right <laughs> Well, with all the jobs that you've had, I mean, you've certainly had to juggle a lot throughout your career, whether it's uh, hosting a radio show, acting on Broadway, doing TV, composing. How have you managed the, the diverse roles and, and how have you kept energized and focused while having to juggle it all? Well, energized, fortunately, so far, hasn't been a problem. I, I'm, I'm energized. I just, I, I don't sleep enough um, and I wish I did. But I always hit the ground running. I don't know why that is. I feel very lucky about that. Um, but yeah, you know, as I said, I, 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 I've raised five children. And that, that is a huge responsibility, as everybody knows. And so I couldn't be content with just doing this little part here or that part there or saying, no, I, you know what, this script doesn't really meet my standards. I, I'm not going to do this. No. So I was a yes guy. I was the guy, you call me, I say yes. I think I said no to reading, recording the audio book for one of those Fox News people. You know, uh, his name escapes me right now, I'm grateful to say. But one of those guys, and he wrote his book and they wanted me to read it, and I said, nope. But other than that, I say yes. I say yes to television shows, to movies, to little parts, to big parts, to Broadway shows, to off-Broadway shows, to tours that go. I love to work. I need to work to make a living. And if somebody says, will you teach at this university? I say yes. And will you compose this movie score? Yes. You know, will you record these audiobooks? You bet. I'm there. And sometimes it's a problem with scheduling. That's the only problem, overlapped. Your most recent yes is your off-Broadway return engagement as President Dwight Eisenhower. And it involves adapting General Eisenhower's memoirs, his speeches, his letters. What drew you to this project and what made you say yes to it? Well, it's a, it's a brilliant brilliant piece of writing. That's what. It's a great play. And it's a little, I guess, daunting or off-putting if you just look at it. Uh-oh. It's a one-man show. It's Dwight Eisenhower, and it has an intermission. So that means it's two acts, and it's one guy, and he's going to be talking to us as Ike. Maybe I'll see Lion King for the seventh Have line. you done a one-man show before? No, no, never have. I always thought I would, and I always imagined it me at the piano singing songs, either Broadway songs or being Jerome Kern or something and pretending I was him. But too many people do that too well. And I just gave up on that idea. And then suddenly an email came from the director, Peter Ellenstein, and the, and the writer, Richard Hellison. And I read it and I said, good grief. I, I don't know if I can memorize 40 some odd pages of single-spaced monologue and get them right every night. But but that, and then plus what I said, you know, who's going to want to come and see a, a, a monologue by Dwight Eisenhower? So they said, come read it for us. Read it out loud. We haven't heard it yet. So I said, yeah, okay. I listened to some tapes. I heard Eisenhower's kind of way of talking. He had that sort of Midwestern kind of thing, and he was authoritative. He knew what he was talking about 
five-star general. He'd been president of Columbia University. Started NATO, so he he knew how to be in charge. So I got that sort of sound of him, and I met them in a little room, and and I read out the play, read it out loud. They didn't interrupt me, and by the time I was done, we all looked at each other and said, "Okay, we got to do this play," because we were all they who had put it together, and I who had sort of just now heard it for the first time myself. Um, we were all moved and inspired and uplifted and because of the way this man, Richard Ellison, wrote it. It's not a lecture. It's not a history lecture. It's a, it's a day in a man's life after he retires from several of the most powerful jobs in the world. And, and he's considering how he is thought of today. And he reads a bad thing, in, like a bad review in the New York Times. Exactly. And it pisses him off. And so he starts the play saying, wait a damn minute, you know? And that that is a moment. And, and as an actor, you can act that. His ego is bruised. And he starts talking. He's talking into a tape recorder because he's recording the book about his presidency that he's supposed to be recording for his editor. But he starts talking instead to the people who wrote that about him in the Times, who aren't listening, of course, but he's recording it. And over the course of the play, he moves quickly away from his bruised ego and into a contemplation of what it is to be a leader, what the responsibility is, what the demands are, what the costs are, what the what the aspiration, what the hopes and goals are to whoever is in power in whatever way they are in power, and the people that they are in charge of or commanding or representing, how the the job boils down to your responsibility and caring for those people. And and that is extremely moving to the audience because it's all true. N nothing has been fictionalized or made up by the playwright. Everything I say in the play is something that Eisenhower either said or wrote or was quoted for having said to an interviewer or a, or a reporter or writer or something. So it's all him. And yet, an audience of today hears it and says, geez, I don't hear that kind of talk very often anymore uh, from politicians. Uh -huh. And so it gives them hope as they leave the theater. It is possible to be that guy and to be in such huge positions of power and still be humble and care more about the people to make their lives better than it is to burnish your image and make some more money on the side or be thought of in some highfalutin way. And that's 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 what this play is. Yeah, I mean, it's we were talking about the golden age of Broadway, but society changes, theater changes. In what ways have you seen through your career, through your eyes, in what ways have you seen theater itself change in good or bad ways? Well, yeah. In America, both sadly and maybe sometimes not, but more often sadly, it's always about money. Mm. Always. Everything. Everything. You know, all of the political stuff and the screaming and yelling, and it's finally about money. The, the, the issues that, that seem to be cultural issues that we talk about, money. Somebody's making a buck off of whatever it happens to be. And that buck keeps changing and growing. And your measure is made by the money you make. And that's true of individuals, but it's certainly true of corporations. And it's even certainly true of countries. And so America is obsessed with money. And that reflects itself in the theater, as I was saying earlier, where I could go to the theater and then see uh, the great greatest actors and directors and playwrights work for five bucks, you know, and I could go again and again. Now, 
that same seat cost me two hundred dollars. Uh, you know, I wanted to see Hamilton after it was playing for a year. I was in a rehearsal for another show. The first day of rehearsal, I ran downstairs and said, "Okay, I've got four weeks where I'm working ten to six before I start working nights. So I've got a month that I can see this show Hamilton that I hear is the best thing that's ever hit Broadway." And I went to the box office. I knew the guys. They'd been with me in another show somewhere else. And I said, hey, oh, John, how are you? Uh, one seat, any performance at night in the next four weeks. Anything? Oh, no, geez, we're sold. Oh, no, look, we have one for next Tuesday. I said, oh, great. How much? $850. <laughs> oh, I said, are you effing kidding me? And I didn't go. Yeah. I'm not going to pay that. I eventually saw the show and I paid $250, which was already too much because I also broke my wife and kid. But, you know, th that's part of what, what's changed the theater. And in order to scrape up that kind of money, then you got to attract audiences, not who want to see a play necessarily or have thoughts about things where a play can open have great directors and playwrights and actors, but maybe it runs for six months or eight months. And it's a wonderful play and it'll be done throughout eternity in all the other theaters and schools and everything all over the world. But it's not a giant blockbuster hit where there's a line around the block and, and they're making, you know, $6 million a week profit. No, it's a little thing. That's no longer the case. You can't have that. All musicals have to be these giant, huge affairs that that attract tourists, you know, to make the hotels have more people in them than the restaurants have more people in them. And it's all sort of about the economy and the, you know, the it, it gets all lost in the shuffle. And a playwright with a great play has a much, much harder time nowadays to get that play on. And if it has more than four people in it, oh my gosh, you know, you can't write a play with 20 people in it anymore because you have to pay them all too much. And that's us actors, of course, too, going on strike to get a better wage. But that's also everybody else. And it's the rental of the theater. And it's the, you know, it's everything else that goes in with it. Yeah, it's interesting what you bring up is that they're not there to see a play or be moved. They're there to see their favorite star because they yeah, got a celebrity. Yes, it's about stars and yeah. it's about, you know, huge sets and special effects and, you know, explosions and God knows what. And of course, there are great plays sandwiched in there and great musicals. There's still great work being done, but it has a much harder time getting on. And if you're a playwright and you have this wonderful idea for a play that's going to have 20 characters, you write it with your soul and your blood, and then you bring it to the producers and whoever, and they say, get out of here. We can't, we, no way, forget about it. Unless you get Brad Pitt in it, and then, okay, maybe we have a shot. But otherwise, no. Make this for four people, and we'll, we'll give it another read. Which makes your off-Broadway show about Eisenhower all the more special because it's well, Why, it's one, it's, just it, me. it's one person, but it's also about something that uh, that probably wouldn't be seen certainly on a Broadway stage, but it can it can survive in an off-Broadway environment. Yes, I, I I think it can, and I and I I'm hoping that a lot of people come to see it. We've had audiences. We did it in two different theaters in Los Angeles, and we did it here all summer long, June, July, and August. And the audiences who come, that a lot of old people, you know, who remember Ike and, and, and are sort of aware of that period. And they say, oh, gosh, yes, I remember. But there are a lot of young people come who basically almost never heard of him. They know, oh, yeah, there was General Eisenhower. He did something D-Day, yeah, World War II. But um, he's sort of a forgotten president. After him, things started to get more flashy with Jack Kennedy, and he was assassinated, and then, oh, Nixon, and God knows what else happened after that. There's been a, a lot of terrible stuff going on, and Eisenhower is sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, he was a president for eight years, he played golf, didn't he? He was bald, and I think that's about it, right? 
And no, there's a great deal more to it. And young people come to this show and are, they say, I got I to gotta start reading about him. I'm so glad that I know this now. Not just know the facts, but have heard from the man himself, sort of, what people in those kinds of positions go through and try to do, especially if they're decent people, as opposed to so many of the people we're reading about in the headlines these days. Well, it certainly is wonderful to hear you talk about it. I certainly look forward to seeing it this month. And well, good. Uh, I'm glad you're coming. Yeah, I'm definitely going to come and see it. And it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your stories and your sure. experiences. It's been wonderful getting to know you and listen to you. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for joining John and me for this episode. As you can clearly see, John is a natural storyteller. So I am looking forward to seeing his performance as Dwight D. Eisenhower, which is at theater at St. Clement's in Midtown Manhattan. And I actually did an off-Broadway musical there myself with my previous guest, Richard Maltby Jr. as the creative consultant in that show. With it also being a church, Theater at St. Clement is a unique place for both audiences and performers. So to find out more about John's play, Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, go to eisenhowertheplay.com. That's all one word, eisenhowertheplay.com. Well, that about does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast, which is a production of WinMe Media, with Maria Clara Ribeiro as co-producer. Background music used in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and John Bartman. Be sure to join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. How often did you, or how long did you live in Paris, or was it more just going back and forth? Back and forth. My parents um, lived in Paris when World War II broke out. Mm. And they lived there with my older brother and sister, um, who were little kids then. And uh, as, they, as they realized Hitler was coming and going to take over, they got out of there. I mean, my father did, he was a concert pianist, and he had a... Uh, a tour already booked for America simultaneously, coincidentally. So they hopped on a boat and came to New York in 1939 and uh, gave up their house there in Paris. And the little section where they lived became the headquarters for the Gestapo all during the Vichy government. Wow. And so they lived in New York for a, a couple of three years. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many. And then they moved out to Los Angeles, to uh, where so many European emigres moved during the 40s, during that war. And that's why you had all those wonderful European, you know, directors and actors and composers all living in Los Angeles and getting to know each other. And so they were among those. And that's why I was born there, and my older sister, just by two years, we were born in L.A. But in the uh, early mid-50s, when Europe sort of started to rebuild itself and, and came back into function, my dad's uh, career of, uh, of touring Europe every year uh, and playing concerts in all the cities came back. And so living in California was so far away from Europe. And mm -hmm. he would spend like almost half the year touring the United States and sometimes South America and Canada. And then the other half of the year touring mostly Europe and sometimes Asia and places. So they moved back to New York. And that's where I went to school starting in second and third grade. But they also got their house back in Paris. And so they commuted every year, Paris, New York, Paris, New York. And so did we. We went to school in New York, but we would leave early and be in Paris for the spring and summer and into the beginning of fall. And then we'd come back to New York, do school all year, and then go back to Paris. So that went on for many, many years. Yeah. Wow. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've visited Paris a few times myself. And uh, yeah, um, I, I always love going to Europe. I've mostly been to the Western Europe. I still need to do some more Eastern Europe, but uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating continent for sure. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.